Hey guys, I know this is the last session. I know it's four o'clock in the afternoon. We're gonna make this painless, get you out of here quick. So open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. My name's Matt Carter. I'm a pastor in Austin, Texas at a church called the Austin Stone Community Church. And I wanna speak for a minute about foreign missions, but I wanna speak not specifically to those of you in the room that are called to go because everything I'm gonna say if you're already called to go, you're going to get this. I want to talk to the other percentage of people, um, the 40% of you that are called to get a secular job and go out and just be in the real world. And I want to talk to those of you that want to be church planners and on church staffs. And I want to talk to you specifically about what it looks like for the rest of us to engage in this thing called foreign missions. Because I'm just a pastor of a church. And I haven't always had a heart for this. And God did some stuff in my heart, and now we have a huge heart for it at the Austin Stone. But we'll do that, and we'll get you out of here. But I, I want to read um, to you Luke chapter 10, verse 30 in just a second. But let me tell you the context. Jesus, um, he's walking around. Guy's up, guy comes up to Jesus, and he asks this question. He said, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I go to heaven? And then Jesus says a couple of things. He said, one, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And everybody look at me real quick. The guy looks at him and he says, okay, I've got the whole loving my God thing down, but how do I love my neighbor? And that's a great question. How do I love my neighbor? And then with Jesus answering the question, what, what it looks like for you and for me to love our neighbor, he tells this story. And here it is, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. And Jesus replied, again, answering the question, how do I love my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan and answering the story of what does it look like for you as a Christian to love your neighbor? He tells about this guy that was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now I've been to Israel before. That's that, that road that they're talking about right there, it's still there. Jerusalem is up on a big tall mountain and there's this road that comes down from it, uh, down to the city of Jericho and on either side of it are these rocks. They're there today. And as you travel down it, you, you remember this story and you kind of get, yeah, I could see how robbers would hang out in these rocks and attack people. And that's what happened. This dude was cruising down the road. These robbers fall upon him. They beat him and they leave him half dead. And in the Greek, that half dead means that he's literally, he's in the process of dying. Okay. And so he's, he's laying there in the street. He's bleeding. He's naked. And then something else happens here. Something else happens is these two religious guys come along. These two religious guys. And if you're hearing the story, if you're, you're, you're hearing Jesus tell the story, you're thinking, okay, sweet, good news. You got a dying guy here. And these two religious guys, Jesus said it was a priest and a Levite, and they were going up the hill. They were coming from Jericho up to Jerusalem, and no doubt they were going, these priests and Levi, to go perform religious services in the temple. That's what they had to have been doing. And so this is this guy's lucky day, right? Well, it wasn't. So the scripture says that both of them saw the guy, Jesus said, both of them saw the guy laying in the road and Jesus said they just walked right on past him. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, they were scared, they were afraid they were gonna get attacked too. Um, maybe they were worried that if they touched him and got bloody, they'd be ceremonially unclean. Maybe they just didn't have time. But regardless, these were men that, check this out, they saw the need and they completely ignored the need. 
And Jesus tells that part of the story to, sh to show you and I that's what it does not look like to love our neighbor. You can say you're religious, you can say you're a Christian all day long, but Jesus says, hey, if you wanna be a person that, that loves your neighbor like you have to do, this is what it looks like. You can't see a need and then ignore the need. And then Jesus goes on and he tells us what it actually looks like for you and for me as followers of Christ to love our neighbor in verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan. There's another guy that comes by, the dying guy. He's a Samaritan. And by the way, a Samaritan is the mortal enemy of this Jewish guy that's laying in the ground dying. It's a Jewish dude laying on the ground dying. A Samaritan, mortal enemy of the Jews, comes, comes walking by. It said, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. That's the dying guy. Now watch this next part. It's key. He says, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That's a key phrase. If you have like one of those old school Bible things that actually has paper pages in it, underline that phrase, he had compassion. As a key phrase on what it looks like for you and me as Christians to love our neighbor. There's only a, a couple of times in the scripture where you see that phrase in the original language show up, he had compassion. And it's key. One of the first times you see that phrase is in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. All these people are following Jesus, and this was back in the day before they had like Walmart and McDonald's, and so you just couldn't get food anywhere. And so everybody's been following Jesus around all day. They're starving. The scripture says, check this out, that Jesus looked on the crowd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw that they were hungry, and the scripture says, and he had compassion on them. It's the same phrase there, the story of the Good Samaritan. And then what did it, what did it say Jesus did? It said he fed them. He had compassion on them. He did something for them. The other time you see that phrase, he had compassion, the story of the prodigal son. You got the, the son that comes up to his dad and says, Dad, basically I wish you were dead. I want your, your, my inheritance right now. So he gets, dad gives it to him. Says he goes to a faraway land. He squanders his inheritance on loose living, prostitutes, parties. The scripture says the famine comes into the land. He finds himself one day, he's in a pig pen, feeding himself on the, what pigs eat. Jesus said he had a moment where he comes to his senses. That's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. It's like he get, he, he, it hits him that sinning is stupid. And he comes to his senses and he realizes, man, the guys that live in my dad's house, the, the servants, they're eating better than I'm eating right now. So he gets up out of the pig pen. He comes back towards his dad's house. And the scripture says this, that his dad was waiting on him, waiting for him. The scripture says why he was still a long way off. His dad saw him. Listen, it said, and he had compassion on him. And his dad stood up off the porch, hiked up his robes, and took off in a dead sprint. And said, my son was dead, but now he's alive. And they threw a party for him. And then like the third time you see this phrase is right here in this story. In the story, let's read it again. Luke chapter 10, verse 33. Guy laying on the ground. He's, he's naked, he's dying. In verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan as he, he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, when the Samaritan saw him, it says he had compassion. Now check this out. Same phrase, here's what it means. When, when Jesus uses that phrase over and over again, he had compassion, it means that you do not just see a need and feel bad about it. Everybody catch this. You don't just see a need or hear about a need and feel bad about it. 
but to have compassion is when you see a need or you hear about a need and you do something about it. So what it means for you and I to love our neighbors like Jesus told us to, it means that when we see a need, we don't just go, oh man, that stinks, but we do something about it. That's, that's the definition of loving your neighbor. And so what I wanna do for the rest of the day is I wanna tell you about a huge need and I wanna give you four quick reasons why we engage it and we're done. Here's the need. Here, here's the massive need that I wanna tell you about. Here it is. Somewhere around, and the numbers change, somewhere around 6.1 to 6.4 billion people, the vast majority of which are outside of the United States that don't know Jesus. 6.4 billion people, most of which are outside the United States, they don't know Jesus. I think, uh, I don't know what the number exactly is of the unreached people groups, but it's over 5,000. There's over 5,000 distinct people groups, groups of people that have never, ever, 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 ever heard the name of Jesus. And as it stands, if nothing changes, those six point whatever billion people will live their lives, they will die, and they will go to a place that Jesus called hell, where they will spend eternity separated from the living God. I wanna just say this one more time. Six point something billion people don't know Jesus. Here's the question. I'd say that's a pretty good need, amen? amen. Pretty big need. Are you having compassion on that need? I'm not talking about your church. I'm not talking about your college ministry. I'm not talking about your pastor, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you as a Christian, your name, you. Are you having compassion on that need? Are you hearing about that need and doing something about it? Or like the priest and the Levite, are we too busy going to church services? that we're not stopping and actually engaging the need. And I wanna, I wanna be honest with you, for me, for me, I was one of those people that when I would hear a stat like that, 6.4 billion people don't know Jesus, it would just go over my head. It didn't even move my heart at all. It's just a big number, it's hard to get our minds around it. And <clears throat> excuse me, something happened a few years ago that um, just kinda God began to work on my heart about these 6.4 billion people. I, I was at a, an event at another seminary, actually. This, the president of that seminary had invited myself and a guy named Matt Chandler and a guy named David Platt and a guy named J.D. Greer over to uh, his seminary, and we just hung out in this room for three days. And I think the seminary professor, we were all kind of the young Southern Baptist preacher guys, and I think this seminary professor was trying to figure out if we were all saved or not. And so what he did is he just, we spent the true story. We spent three days and all we did is the president would throw out this theological question and we would just go around the table and we would give our theological answer. It was fascinating. It was awesome. And um, so anyway, we, you know, we would, we talk about Calvinism and Arminianism and we talked about our theory of the end times. We did all this stuff. And um, at the end of the three days, David Platt, you know David Platt, you know who David Platt is? Okay, cool. He was in there and he engaged in all that and he had to leave because he was preaching at some camp or something and he had to leave early. And so um, the president guy looked and said, David, I know you've got to leave, you've got to go preach. Can you just, do you have anything else you want to say to us? 
before you leave. And, and I'll never forget this. This is stuck in my head, this little moment, this little simple moment. David stood up. And he, he, David's always really serious. What you see on stage, and he, that's, that's him in all of life. He, and he stood up, and he put his hand on the back of the chair, and he looked at us, and he said this. He said, gentlemen, everything we've been talking about over the last few days is really, really important. You know, the women's role in the church and the end times and Calvinism and all that, that's, that's so important. But he said, we can never forget that there are billions of people out there that don't know Jesus. And that's what we need to be about. And he said, I'll see you guys later. And he turned around and he walked out the door. I mean, that happened. And Matt Chandler was the first person to talk because Matt Chandler is always the first person to talk in a room <laughs> if you don't know him. And Chandler goes, man, that guy's godly. And I'm like, yeah, he is. But something happened. When David did that, something, something snapped in my head. The light kind of came on. That even though I was a pastor and even though I was a preacher of the gospel and that even though I had planted a church in Austin, Texas, it kind of hit me in that moment that just because I'd done all those things didn't mean I could scratch the Great Commission off my to-do list. That just because I had told a few people over the years about Jesus, it, that God just kind of rested on my heart that I, I couldn't ignore the other people in the other places around the world that have not heard the name of Christ. And so I want, here's what I want to do today, real quickly. I want to give you four reasons why everybody in the room, four reasons why everybody in the room, and we're going to go through these real fast, why everybody in the room, whether you're part of that 40% that we saw earlier that, that wants to go get a secular job or whether you want to be a church planner or whether you're going to be on a staff of a church or whether you're, you're a goer, you're going to go. Or whether you, this is why we got to do this. This is why we can't just hear about the need. We got to do something about it. Here's the first one. This is the simplest reason why everybody in the room has to engage this need. Are you ready for this? It's the, the theologically most simple. Jesus told us to do it, and so we've got to do it. Amen? There's nothing super crazy about that. Jesus told us to do it, and so we're going to do it. I, there's a show that I've gotten into on Netflix recently. It's probably too boring for most people, but it's called Crown. And it's on Netflix, and I've gotten into it. It's a good show. Fairly clean. And here's the thing about this show that's been good for me to watch. Is there's a lot of language in the New Testament when it talks about God and when it talks about Jesus, and they refer to him as king. And I'm a good, old-fashioned American, and we don't like kings in America. All right? There's a reason you and I are sitting in this room right now. It's because we don't like kings. We, we're like, no, King George, I think it was, back in the day or whatever, when we're like, we're, we're tired of you telling us what to do, so we're going to fight you and go do our own thing. And that's why we're all here in America. God bless America, all right? And so I'm just being totally honest with you um, that the concept of God as king has been kind of the one theological concept about his character that I've had the hardest time with in my life. I get God as father. I had a great dad. I love my dad. And so to think of God as father is super easy to me. Um, I get the, the concept of God as savior because I know I'm messed up and I know my sin. And so I know I need a savior. I even get, I even get God as friend. The scripture talks about him as a friend because I have, I have, a, I have an emotional love relationship with the Lord. So I, I get him as friend. The, the concept of king has been a tough one for me 
because I've never been underneath the king. So I watched this show, and the whole show is about the, you know, the king of England and the queen of England. And here's the thing. Those suckers in England, man, when the king says something, they just do it. He's the king. This is, England is his kingdom. I know it changes the parliament and all that stuff, but back in the day, if the king says it, you do it. And so it's given a visual picture for me. So when we talk about Jesus as our king, when the king speaks, we do what he says. And whether or not you, you're down with that or get it, I don't know. I'm just telling you, Jesus is our king. And Jesus has said, not just for those 20-something percent that feel called, but Jesus tells us, our king, he said this. Don't turn there, just listen. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Listen to what our king said. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's king. And then verse 19, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the last words that our king spoke before he ascended into heaven and where he now sits on the right hand of the Father. The last thing he said, our king, the last thing he told us to do was go. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And the fact that our king has given us this directive means that there's not a single person in this room who would claim the name of Christ who can opt out of that directive. That's number one. Here's number two. This is a, this is a big one for me in the last couple of years. All of us need to at some level engage in foreign missions Admissions in general, whether it's local or foreign because of this reason, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are a part of the family of God that have not yet been found. We have brothers and sisters that we will spend eternity with that have not yet heard the name of Christ and we gotta tell them, all right? And, and, and here's the verse that I, that I think about. It's Ephesians 2.19, again, maybe write it down. Paul says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so what Paul is saying to us is, look, the United States, it's not really our country. You're, not a, you're a United States citizen, or you know, that's just kind of a, a temporary thing. You're a member of a family here on earth. That's just a temporary thing. We got several trillion years coming. Y'all with me? We got several trillion years in heaven where we are going to be a part of this thing called the household of God. So you know what that means? Is that everybody in heaven, they're your family. They're your family. Now, I've, I'm not gonna get into the theology of heaven, but I've studied it a pretty good deal. And here's what I'm convinced of. I believe with all my heart, you're gonna know everybody there. We got a long time to get to know each other. There's a limited number of people that are gonna get in. You're gonna know them all. And here's the thing, you're gonna love every one of them. You're gonna, you're gonna know and you're gonna love every one of them. Everybody in this room that's saved, we're gonna know, we're gonna know each other in heaven and you're gonna be my brother and you're gonna be my sister and we're gonna love each other. And we're going, to be, we're going to know each other. And we're going to be in this kind of perfect, really cool, 
relationship for eternity that sin has zero part of. It's just gonna be this real awesome thing. It's, we're a family. We're gonna be a family in heaven. That's, that's so cool. Has it ever dawned on you that we got brothers and sisters out there that haven't heard yet? We gotta go find them. We got brothers and sisters. We gotta go find them. We gotta tell them. I, 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 have, a, I have three kids. I got a 16-year-old boy and I got a 14-year-old girl. He's going on 22, and then I got a little guy, he's 11. And when he was four or five, we went to Disney World <coughs> for his birthday, and we walked into, I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World, but they've got this thing, I think it's called Main Street. And if you can just imagine this being Main Street and all these cool shops are on the side, and when you, that's the first thing you see when you walk in Disney World, and the castle's at the big end of it. And there's not just a few people on Main Street. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of people on this Main Street. And I had all three kids, and Sammy, my little one, he was... I thought I had his hand, but it, we kind of got bumped into by a bunch of people, and I, I lost Sammy, and, and, um, and, and, and I just I kind of turned around, and, and I couldn't find him, and, I, and Jennifer was just a couple, of, my wife was a few feet away from me. I was like, hey, I lost Sammy. You know where Sammy is? And so she starts looking around, and I see JD, the oldest son. I'm like, you got him? And long story short, little man's gone. I mean, he is gone. And come to find out, he had seen, like, some candy. He was like, woo, candy, you know, and he took off. But there was, there was a second there. We, we lost the little guy. Now, when you guys are parents one day, it's going to happen to you, so don't judge me. And you're going to lose your kid at some point, like I did at Disney World. And, and here's the thing. We, I have a son here, and he's gone. J.D., he's got a brother. That, that kid's lost. Annie, she's got a brother. He is lost. We got a mom whose son, he's lost. I'm going to tell you what we didn't do in the moment where we realized that Hurricane Sammy has gone. I'm going to tell you what we, what we didn't do in that moment is we didn't look at each other and go, okay, Sammy's lost. Do y'all want to go get a cheeseburger real quick? Hey, Sammy's gone in the sea of people. Should we go ride the Matterhorn first before we look for him? Hey, Sammy's, Sammy's lost. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's, let's go... Let's just go tell the cops, and they can look for him because it's somebody else's problem. They can find him. We'll just go do our own thing. No. What do you think we did? We stopped everything we were doing, and we didn't quit till we found the kid. And I feel like in America, what we've done is we, like, we, 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 we know, one, we don't look at these people out there as our brothers and sisters that we're going to spend the next several trillion years with, that we're going to know really, really well and love them to death. We don't look at them that way. And two, we're kind of opting this thing out, co-opting this out to other people to go find them. The time is short, folks. Jesus is coming back. We got to go find him. That's two. Here's number three. You have the power, if you're a Christian here today, you have the power in you right now to do powerful things with Christ for the kingdom of God. And I think most of us don't ever think about that. I'll say it again. If you're a Christian here today, you have the power inside of you to do powerful things with Christ for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> because here's the thing, guys. I want you to understand something. God doesn't use just 
preacher guys like me. He doesn't just use guys like David Platt or John Piper or Elizabeth Elliot or Jim Elliot. He doesn't just use guys like that to reach the nations. The scripture says that God uses everybody to reach the nations, and here is why. Here's why you are just as equipped and you're just as called to reach the nations as a guy like me or a guy like David Platt or anybody like that. And here's the reason. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. This is a verse you need to memorize, 20 and 21. And here it is. Paul says, now to him, that's Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. Look at what that says. Let's leave that verse up there if we can. Let's leave that up. Watch what it says. He says, now to him who is able. And so what Paul says is, hey guys, God is able to do something. God's able to do something. What is he able to do? What is our God able to do? Here's what he says. He's able to do far more abundantly Paul doesn't say God's able to do more than something. He doesn't say um, just God's able to do far more than something. He says God is able to do something far more abundantly. What, What Paul is about to tell us that God is able to do, Paul is telling us our God is really super awesome, amazingly able to do this. What is it that God is far more abundantly able to do? It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Let's talk about that for just a second. Have you ever stopped for two seconds and thought about what you might could do for the Lord through his power? Have you, have you ever just like, if, if, if somebody came up to you and said, what is it, if you could do anything in the world, and God said you can do anything in the world for the kingdom of God in your lifetime, in your 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years on this earth, if you could do anything, what would it be? Have you ever stopped two seconds and thought about that? If you could ask God to let you do something, what would you ask for? It could be anything. What would you ask? Paul goes on, it's not just far more abundantly than what you could ask for, it's far more abundantly than you can even think of. Have you ever dreamed big dreams? That's what it's talking about, for what, how God might be able to use you. Watch what this says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within John Piper. No. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in Beth Moore. No. It says God is able to do far more, exceedingly abundantly more than anything we can ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. Here's what that's saying. That if you are here and you're a Christian, you have inside of you the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in you right now. You do. You do. The the power of... Paul said that raise Jesus Christ from the grave is in you. And I think sometimes God just looks at us and says, man, your prayers are too small. Your dreams are too small. Now look, here's the thing, and I want to be real super clear. God is calling some of you to go be housewives and raise kids, and that's awesome. And you're going to need power to do that. 
God's calling some of you to be businessmen. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. And you're going to need far more abundant power to do that. But I'm just telling you, God is calling some of you to raise your hands and say crazy stuff. Like Jim Elliott, like, hey, I'm going to go to South America and reach the Wataka tribe or whatever those people were for the name of, with the name of Christ. And you're, you're holding back from doing that because you don't realize you got the power that raised Jesus from the grave in you. And by the way, I, I don't think Dr. Aiken finished the story last night. Did y'all know those guys came to Christ? Yeah, they killed him. And they eventually got saved. <sighs> Power's in you. Do not be afraid to ask God for crazy stuff. Because he's given you the power. He's given you the power to do it. Last thing. Last thing. Um, So, so here's, here's, what, here's what all this means. I'll go ahead and land the plane. I think God is calling some of you in this room, not necessarily to go to some nation or some unreached people group, but I believe what that calling is gonna look like and the way God is gonna use that power is that he is gonna call you to be a businessman or a businesswoman And the way that you can engage this need, the way that you can have compassion on this great need is you can go out, you can work really, really hard in college. For this reason, you can work really, really hard in college and go out and get the best stinking job you could ever imagine and make all kinds of money not to build a big house on the beach and a swimming pool and the car, but so that you can go out and make a whole lot of money so that you can fund like 2,000 missionaries. That's your calling. That's you not ignoring the need. You go get a business degree and then you go get a master's of business administration and then you go make $700,000 a year and give like 95% of it away. That's what some of you, God's calling you right now in this room to do. Here's what other people are called to do. You're not called to go, but for the rest of your life, you're called to be a support to the goers. This is something that I do. Outside of my ministry the Austin Stone, there are several missionaries that I have in my life that not only do I give a portion of my salary to, this is above and beyond what I give to my local church because that's missions, but I give, and, and, I, and I'm on kind of their support team. I'm, I'm praying for them. I'm writing them letters. I get in an airplane, I go visit them. Um, we do marriage counseling for them, my wife and I. It's just, just saying, I've got these three, these four, these five goers in my life, and my whole deal is I'm going to be there for them so that they can accomplish the calling on their life. So you may not be called to go, but I promise you that's how you can have compassion on the nations as you make sure other people are goers are, are equipped to do their job. You can do that. And then the last thing is this, is some of y'all are called to go. Some of you are called to go, you don't even know it yet. You don't even know it, know it yet, but here's my advice to everybody in the room. I would, I, would, I would dare you to pray that prayer. God, if this is what you want me to do, my answer is yes. If you want me to stay, I'll stay. But if you want me to go, I'll go. All right, let's pray. And, and, and guys, as this, as this conference wraps up, just let's take one minute. Let's take 60 seconds here. And let's just do business with him. You do business with him. Whatever he's calling you to, take a moment and talk to him.
maybe you're not at a place where you're ready to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going, but maybe you need to be at a place today where you say, Lord, I just want you to know that if you call me, my answer is yes. Maybe you need to say that to him today. It's a bold, bold, dangerous prayer. But it's one you'll never regret. I promise you that. Maybe you need to lay your dreams of success in business and in whatever field God's calling you. Maybe you want to lay that at the altar today and say, God, I, I'm going I'm to go down this path, but I'm going to go down this path for you, for your name, for your glory. Maybe that's the commitment that you need to make today. Father, I pray that we would not be like the the priest and the Levite that we're so busy going to church that we missed all the stuff that was around us. And I pray that we would be like the Samaritan that stopped and had compassion on the man and covered him with oil and bound up his wounds and took care of him and loved him. And I pray that those that are around us at school and in our dorms and in our homes and in, yes, even all over the world that don't know you, Lord, but that we would spend our lives making sure that our brothers and sisters hear your name. We love you, Jesus. You're worth worth all of this. And I pray that great fruit would be born from the men and women in this room. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, church, let's stand together.